Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to move our airway discussion from airway assessment and equipment, which we did on our previous presentation. If you've not listened to that, I really encourage you to go back and do so. We're going to be assuming that you have listened through that and understand all of the different aspects of an assessment and an equipment uh, airway management basis before we move into this episode, which we're going to focus on the difficult airway algorithm. What happens when you have a difficult intubation? What happens when you have difficult ventilation? What happens if you are assessing a patient pre-op and you suspect either a difficult ventilation or intubation? And what are the plans that we can use to go about taking care of that patient from an airway standpoint? Uh, The biggest thing here is safety. And we want to make sure our uh, patient safety is the first and foremost thing in our mind. Um, So when you're doing an assessment, um, we're going to assume again that you've already listened to our previous episode on this, where we walk through all the different assessment techniques and all the different equipment that are available. And then in this presentation and uh, episode today, we're really going to focus on what are the steps that we're going to walk through when you have difficulty arise. Let's start with what a normal intubation would look like. And this is probably extremely, extremely basic for review, but I think it's important because many times we gloss over these things or we uh, maybe omit a few of these steps and get in a hurry. So it's important that we articulate what we should be doing every single time for normal intubation. And then from there, we'll talk about the different other paths that you might take should you encounter difficulty. First thing you should do, like Cole mentioned, if you haven't listened to our uh, preoperative airway assessment discussion on our last episode, make sure you go and do that. But after you do your airway assessment, if you're not anticipating any difficulty with direct laryngoscopy or intubation, and you're planning on a general anesthetic, you always want to make sure that you are pre-oxygenating the patient prior to inducing your anesthesia. So usually the recommended time is three to five minutes. This is something that, again, we get sloppy and don't always do. But when we talk about the different paths that you may need to take for the difficult airway algorithm, this is what's really important. This is what's going to give you time to manage a difficult airway. If you're pre-oxygenating the patient for three to five minutes. Again, maybe when they come in, you can start this pre-oxygenation right away. So as you're connecting your monitors and things like that, it doesn't seem like so much time. I know often we're we're in a hurry to get cases going, but never at the expense of, of patient safety. So after you've pre-oxygenated for three to five minutes, let's talk about your typical adult IV induction. If you're going to do a regular induction, then you'll go ahead and give your medications. Once the patient is unresponsive, you're going to make sure that you can mask the patient. You will verify that you're adequately ventilating based on chest rise. You make sure that you have end tidal and also that you're paying attention to the volume of air that you're, you're moving. Depending on the facility you work at, you can then give a muscle relaxant either after verifying ventilation or some facilities will uh, have you give the muscle relaxant prior to giving ventilation. Oftentimes, this is something that when I initially was starting out intubating, people were very, very cautious to have you give the muscle relaxant before you mask ventilated. And there's kind of two schools of thought on this, and I'm sure everyone has their own opinions. The, The thing is with the muscle relaxant, this will inevitably cause 
the patient to relax, and this will give you the ability to ventilate easier. With the uh, advent of Sigamidex, this is nice that you can reverse a uh, muscle relaxant very quickly. Sigamidex is not always benign in its own right. So this is another concern that someone might have as far as giving that before you are sure that you can ventilate. But again, there's two schools of thought here, whether you give the muscle relaxant prior to verifying your ventilation or after. After you've verified that you can ventilate or after you've given the uh, muscle relaxant and now you're uh, ventilating the patient, you have to give enough time for those medications to circulate. Obviously, it depends on what kind of muscle relaxant you're giving, but you need to give adequate time there for the uh, meds to have their full effect, and then you can perform your direct laryngoscopy. After you place the tube through the cords, several things that you need to check to verify that you are in the correct place. First thing is you'll be looking for your positive end title. You'll also look for chest rise. You'll want to listen for bilateral breath sounds. I think this is something that often you get in a hurry and don't always take the time to do. If you have good end title, you have good volumes, maybe you bypass the chest sounds. This is something that is uh, a great marker and is part of uh, something we should be doing every single time, but it's something that will tell you a lot about where your tube is and exactly the positioning and your successful intubation. So something that is definitely necessary. Uh, you can also look for mist in the endotracheal tube. Sometimes that can be a little misleading initially, but you should be able to verify again with mist in the endotracheal tube, especially as you continue to ventilate them. And then finally, you also want to look at your tidal volumes, make sure that there's no type of bronchospasm happening or getting good volumes. Also uh, that your pressures are adequate. And so you're not in um, one main stem or the other. So while you're comparing your tidal volumes, with your pressures would also give you ideas of what's going on in the lungs. You can also use a fiber optic scope or chest x-ray to verify placement. Obviously, if we're doing a routine case, you're not going to use a chest x-ray to verify placement every single time. This is something that's more done uh, if the patient is on the floor. And fiber optic, uh, again, if you are doing a double lumen tube, this is something that you will most likely do every single time. But for a regular endotracheal tube and uh, just a regular case, you're probably not going to do that fiber optic scope. One other thing that we should mention here on your typical induction is if you're doing a rapid sequence induction, there's going to be no mask ventilation after the patient is unconscious. So uh, again, this is after the patient is, is asleep and you've given your depolarizing muscle relaxant or you've given your higher dose of the non-depolarizer, the patient is going to be at risk here. Obviously, there's a reason we're doing a rapid sequence induction. So you're only at risk for putting more air into the stomach should you not have perfect ventilation or perfect volumes going into the lungs, uh, which could cause issues with the patient ultimately uh, aspirating. If they have any kind of vomiting before you can decompress the stomach. So keep that in mind. If you're doing a rapid sequence induction, you're going to give your meds. And then again, you're not going to mask ventilate before you go for the endotracheal intubation. So now that we've walked through a typical induction intubation, what happens when things go wrong? And this doesn't happen very often. And I feel like we can get into a false sense of security because you may have a patient come back. It's your third or fourth case of the day. You're just doing the motions and you're not really thinking about what is my next step when something goes wrong? What's my plan B? What's my plan C? And it's very easy. And I am guilty of this a lot 
um, of just simply going through the motions and not making sure that you have that in the back of your mind, that you know exactly where you're going to go when things go wrong. And that's why it's important that we're going to walk through here. What are some of the things available to us? What are the next steps and what we should do? And we're really, like I said, at the beginning of this episode is we're going to be talking through um, the ASA guidelines that they recently released between 2021 up to 2022 about um, what are the different steps of a difficult airway algorithm that we're going to be walking through here. So let's talk about now you induce the patient with general anesthesia. Uh, you're attempting to perform a direct laryngoscopy on a patient and you're unable to establish a tracheal intubation. So let's say you know you put the patient to sleep, you're able to ventilate them and you get to the point you do your direct laryngoscopy and you can't get a good uh, view of the cords and you're unable to successfully uh, do a tracheal intubation. What's your next step? Um, So the biggest thing as we walk through all of these steps for the rest of this episode is you shouldn't try something more than two attempts before you do something else. And what we mean by that is um, if you're going to get the same result every time and you're still trying the same thing, you need to switch it up. Don't do something more than twice. Um, Obviously, it's not working for you and we don't need to delay any time um, in terms of getting oxygenation to the patient. So with no more than two attempts for trying to intubate this patient, if you're unable to successfully intubate, back out, re-ventilate the patient. If you were able to ventilate them before, reestablish that ventilation, make sure you're able to successfully ventilate and adequately ventilate, get their oxygen back up to the high 90s. Um, Consider calling for help at this point. Um, If you had just DL'd in the first case, uh, maybe we can look at now doing a video-assisted uh, laryngoscopy the second time, figure out what went wrong. Did you not have the patient in the best position? Um, what are some of the things that you can do differently this next time? But again, make sure your primary thing here, if you are unable to intubate, make sure you reestablish that mass ventilation. If you do try to reestablish that mass ventilation and you're unable to mass ventilate the patient, I mean, this same thing here goes for if you put the patient to sleep and you're unable to establish that ventilation to begin with, the thing that you want to do, I feel feel like most people do this is they slip in an oral airway, a supraglottic airway. Uh, Most of the time, at least in my experience, that does the trick. Um, Sometimes if that still doesn't work, I go to a two hand mask. So I'll have somebody else go to bag the patient and I'll have two hands on the mask itself and I'll be getting that patient in a really good sniffing position. I'm just trying to make that perfect seal. Let's say at this point, you're still unable to get mask ventilation. At this point, you're probably starting to drop in your SATs. And so we really want to make sure time is of the essence here. We don't want to be delaying anything. So the next step would be if we've already tried to intubate, we're unable to successfully see the glottic opening, we're unable to intubate, and we're still unable to mask ventilate at this point. Don't waste any time. Grab an LMA. And this is really important that you know where the LMA is and you know what size of LMA you would use. And this, again, is something I feel like as we get into the motions of things, you have your ET tube out, you know you're doing a general anesthetic with an ET tube, you're going to be bypassing that LMA 99.9% of the time, and you're not really concerned about what size of LMA would you use and where it's at specifically um, behind you with your equipment. But again, if this situation arises, you need to know how to act quickly, you need to know where it's at what size you would use, quickly get that out and get that in the back of the throat. So at this point, you're trying to make sure that you have adequate ventilation. And like I mentioned with your typical induction, this is where it is imperative that you have pre-oxygenated the patient adequately. This is what is going to give you time to 
choose these different pathways and to be able to reassess and determine your next step without adequate pre-oxygenation, this is what is going to really crunch down your time and uh, possibly cause poor outcomes. We'll talk about the closed claim analysis here at the end, but these are things that we often just do very passively because it's just another day and another patient and you're moving on to the next thing. But the one time that you don't do it, this is the time that you are uh, needing to have good pre-oxygenation. And, and again, this just gives you the time needed to do all of these steps. So let's say you've placed the LMA. Now you have good ventilation. Now, what is your next step? And I think this is also, this is not part of the uh, algorithm. This is just my own two cents, but this is where you really need to take a beat and think about, okay, what are we going to do? Is this adequate? Are we able to do the case with an LMA? Is this not worth the risk? Are we going to back off of this? Um, but I think often we 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 get very rushed and uh, just moving on to the next thing without taking a second to think. That's also where it's helpful to have other people in the room so you can discuss these things with other people, other professionals with with a fresh set of eyes. But again, now that you've secured adequate ventilation, now let's think about what are we going to do next. If you still think that you are going to intubate, now we've already tried uh, DL and that hasn't worked. So what are some other things that we can do? Well, we could use a uh, video assisted scope. We could have the patient reposition to make sure that we have all the axes aligned and we, we really do have them in a good position to intubate. Or you could just have uh, somebody else, another anesthesia personnel that is there attempted to base. Say you just think that you had a good view for whatever reason, you just can't quite get the tube to pass. Having somebody else attempt would also be an appropriate next step. So let's say that you've tried one of these things and you are still unsuccessful in uh, trying to intubate. You need to make sure again, that you can go back and ensure that you can ventilate the patient. Once you are sure that you have good ventilation, now let's think about uh, next steps again. You could uh, place a different supraglottic airway that has uh, intubating conduit. So this would be something like a fast trach that you could use. Again, you need to evaluate the pros and cons here because you already have difficulty ventilating this patient. So are you going to burn that bridge by taking out the LMA to place a different LMA? Was it the LMA difficult to place in the first place? Uh, where it might be better to move to a different uh, device, such as using a fiber optic scope, or you could pull the LMA and place a bougie. You could use a lighted stylet. Regardless of what you choose, it's just important that you keep moving down the algorithm using a different pathway, a different approach to securing your airway. Let's say that you're still unable to intubate the patient. And so you are uh, ventilating the patient fine. You're, you verify that you have good ventilation. Now let's think about our, our options. So you could consider waking up the patient. You could consider giving your muscle relaxant reversal if it's uh, appropriate. Again, this is where you're weighing your pros and cons. Is this a surgery that absolutely has to happen right now? Is it a emergency is this an elective procedure where uh, we are outweighing the benefit by the risks that we're posing to the patient? So this is, again, where take a beat, think about what your next steps are, think about what you've already done, and again, the, the risk versus benefit for the patient.
let's say that intubation is necessary. So this is a, a case that you, you definitely need to proceed with and you need to find a way to intubate this patient. If ventilation is not great or it's deteriorating, then you need to plan for an invasive airway. You've already gone through the different pathways of the different methods that you can use. You've tried video-assisted laryngoscopy. You've tried DL. You've tried fiber optic. You've tried a bougie. At this point, we're, we're assuming that your ventilation is not great. So this is where you need to make a decision about an invasive airway. Typically, the surgeon will perform invasive technique, but we also need to be aware of the process. And for the times that you'll be doing this yourself, you definitely need to know your different techniques and how you can perform them. Yeah. As Tanner mentioned, typically this is the surgeon in the room that would do the invasive airway. Um, but oftentimes, you know, the surgeon may not be readily right there available for you to have in an instant come up and do this. And this is all happening pretty quickly. And um, even if the surgeon is in the room, let's say it's a podiatry case and we get to the point here, um, not saying that a podiatry case necessarily would be an emergent one that we would have to continue at this point. But for the example's sake, if you have a, a surgeon that doesn't really deal with uh, ENT type things very often, they themselves may not be as skilled with these invasive techniques. And so as Tanner mentioned, it's very important that we are aware of what are the options for us at this point. And what are the different equipment kits that we would need and things that we would do to establish an invasive airway? And so there's really three main emergency invasive airway techniques that we want to talk about. The first one is uh, cricothyroidotomy, and this can either be done surgically or with a needle. So you have surgical cricothyroidotomy or a needle cricothyroidotomy. When you do the needle one, we'll talk about it's more of a, a pressure regulated device. So a, a jet ventilation. The other ones that we can talk about are surgical tracheostomy or a retrograde wire guided intubation. And these two aren't typically used as much in these emergency invasive airways simply because of the time length that it takes to perform those procedures. It's a lot quicker to do a uh, cricothyroidotomy. And that's really what you would see um, being used first prior to going to these other techniques. So I really want to spend the next couple of minutes here talking through the different steps of both the surgical and the needle cricothyroidotomy. And so the important thing um, with both of these is you need to locate both the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage. And that space in between the two is going to be uh, that membrane, the cricothyroid membrane. So if you feel the midline of the throat right below your chin, where it comes back and meets your throat, you feel the widest cartilage there. That's your thyroid cartilage, often referred to as the Adam's apple in a male. Um, as you move downwards from there to the lower aspect of that thyroid cartilage, you'll feel a little groove in between that and the next rigorous cartilage, which is your cricoid cartilage. And that little space or groove in between the two there is that cricothyroid membrane. And that's the location that we're going to be trying to access here. That'll get us into the trachea. And so when doing this surgical cricothyroidotomy, uh, the biggest thing is once you locate that spot, you're going to make a vertical incision down the midline over that um, space between both the thyroid and the cricoid cartilage that will expose that cricothyroid membrane. Um, this is often done in a couple different incisions. You make the first one to get through the skin and you go a little bit deeper until you expose those two cartilages there. And then you have that gap in between. And once you can visualize that cricothyroid membrane, you can rotate that scalpel and puncture through the cricothyroid ligament. Once you puncture through there, you'll take your index finger and you'll slide your finger actually into the trachea and you'll hold that spot open. And it often starts to get bloody at this point, obviously. Um, we're not as much concerned about the blood um, 
obscuring our view. Um, it's more by feel at this point. You want to get your finger inside there. And once it's in the trachea, you hold that position. And then you usually will slide a, a bougie or some type of, of a marker down through past your finger into the trachea and then downward towards the crina. Once that is in, um, you can take your finger out and slide um, an ET tube, usually about a 6.0 tube for an adult. Um, and you'll slide it over that bougie and then down into the trachea. At this point, you'll connect to the anesthesia circuit. Um, you'll ensure that ventilation is adequate. Um, again, based on what Tanner's already talked about, the chest rise, entitled CO2, bilateral breath sounds, et cetera. Um, but the biggest thing here is making sure that you act quickly at this, but also proficiently. You want to make sure that we're doing this correctly. We don't want to cause more issues. Um, but the problem is at this point, if we're not ventilating and we can't intubate, um, time is of the essence. So as you can see, deciding to go forward with this step is a big decision to make, but it's also something that you can't be wishy-washy about. And if you realize we're unable to, to mass ventilate this patient and we are unable to intubate this patient, or simply we are able to mass ventilate appropriately, but we can need to continue to move forward and secure an airway, depending on how urgent this is going to be, um, you need to make sure that you're making this decision um, quickly and that um, skilled hands are going to be able to be uh, performing this. Um, but again, um, there's a lot of communication that needs to go in this between all the different uh, personnel into the room in terms of knowing where is the, the difficult airway cart, where's the kit for this. Uh, make sure you're aware of that as we'll talk about when we get into the close claims analysis for the malpractice. The important thing is knowing where are your equipment located at and where's that difficult airway cart, what are the kits inside of that, and hopefully you have a kit for this cricothyroidotomy. I'm located there that will have all the supplies needed to quickly do this. It is important to note here that there is an absolute contraindication for this type of invasive airway, and that's for children under the age of 12. Child's larynx is very small, very pliable. It makes this technique very difficult. Relative contraindications as well would be if they have a distorted neck anatomy, if they have a tumor, an abscess over the top of that cricothyroid ligament. And I mean, just think about it. What are the kind of patients that not, not 100%, but a lot more so than not, the kind of patients that are going to end up in this predicament are some of the patients that have those risk factors for a difficult intubation or a difficult ventilation. And that's going to be people with a short, thick neck. Um, it's going to be difficult for us to find the anatomy uh, up front very easily. As we'll talk about moving forward, it's very important that if you see these risk factors in people with that preoperative assessment, you know what kind of plan um, both A, B, and C that you're going to be doing if you run into any difficulties. So as I mentioned, uh, if you're not super pressed for time here and you're able to plan ahead for this, you're able to ventilate, but you still need to move forward. Um, you can use this cricothyrotomy kit um, that hopefully will be in your difficult airway cart um, or wherever you keep the supplies at. And this kit will allow you to puncture the cricothyroid uh, membrane here with a needle attached to a syringe. And you can actually aspirate while you're puncturing until you get air back in the syringe. Then you know you reach the trachea. You can thread the loaded catheter off the needle into the trachea and then insert a guide wire through that catheter. Then you can make an excision with a scalpel over that guide wire uh, to dilate that space. With a dilator, you can thread through, and then you can simply put your ET tube over that wire until it's in the trachea. Um, so as you can see here, um, typically the surgeon will be the one doing this, uh, but the surgeon may not always um, feel comfortable with this because it may be something that they um, have very rarely ever done. Um, and we'll talk about this when we get into the closed claims analysis, but it's also important that we understand the steps of this to be able to help facilitate securing an airway here. The next thing we want to talk about is the needle cricothyrotomy with jet ventilation. This will be using the same technique 
you'll find there your uh, thyroid cartilage move caudal to that and you'll have uh, that little gap between that and your uh, cricoid cartilage locate that membrane insert an 18 gauge angiocath through the cricothyroid membrane and then you can connect that angiocath directly to a jet ventilator you'll be ventilating here with obviously a high pressure oxygen source and you'll be using the regulator valve to control the oxygen flow. It's important to remember with jet ventilation that you could have increased risk of barotrauma because remember the high pressure oxygen is going to be coming from the tank or the wall, uh, a PSI of about 50 to 100. Most jet ventilators will have a regulator to keep the inspiratory pressures under 50 PSI. Just make sure that you are evaluating the settings and making sure that you have enough time uh, when you're adjusting the time for inspiration and the respiratory rate. Remember that exhalation with a jet ventilator is going to occur passively through the upper airway. So think about that. If you have a patient that has a uh, upper airway obstruction, you'll not want to use this because you could potentially overinflate the lungs if you're not adequately giving them the ability to uh, exhale through that upper airway. Using the surgical cricothyrotomy provides a more secure airway. You'll have better ventilation. If you think about using a 6.0 tube compared to here using an angiocath, obviously you're going to have a much different uh, ability to ventilate. But remember, Cole said that the absolute contraindication for performing a surgical cricothyrotomy is a child less than 12 years old. So this would be your step for a child of that age would be to use the needle. Uh, this is going to um, be obviously much smaller. And that's the risk that we're concerned about with the uh, children here of this age with their larynx. And so this is going to be an appropriate next step. If you have somebody under the age of 12 that you're not able to uh, ventilate or you're moving on to this step of the algorithm. You should note here that in some cases, this increased pressure in the airway will actually help the epiglottis uh, become more open and cause the cords to be more visible if you try to DL with these patients. So sometimes this could actually be a step to securing a endotracheal tube through DL simply because you've used this positive pressure, this jet ventilation through the angiocath. This positive pressure is causing the epiglottis to flip up out of the way. And then this could um, cause that to be a little more mobile. So then when you are trying to intubate, if this was the problem from the get-go, this could help you actually get a better view. The other thing that we can talk about here is uh, surgical tracheostomy. This is going to take longer than a cricothyrotomy, so it's typically not used in an emergency. Usually, this is going to be performed by an ENT surgeon, and this is going to be performed at the level of the fourth to sixth tracheal ring and can take up to 30 minutes. If you think back to your cases where you're doing a planned tracheostomy, by no means the longest case that you'll ever do, it's, it's relatively short. But when you think about this compared to doing the cricothyrotomy procedure, it's definitely going to be more involved and take much more time. So again, this is not typically used in an emergency situation. One other thing that I wanna to touch on here is the retrograde wire-guided intubation. This is going to have some of the same techniques, same landmarks that you will use for your needle cricothyrotomy. Uh, with a few exceptions. This will be just a, a little bit different. So uh, you'll still locate that cricothyroid membrane, find your thyroid cartilage, and just below that on the inferior border, you'll have that little gap between that and your cricoid cartilage. 
you'll find that membrane similar to the needle cricothyrotomy. You'll use an angiocath with a syringe and you'll puncture the skin midline there at the cricothyroid membrane. Once you have aspiration of air, that is when you are into the tracheal lumen. And then you can advance the needle catheter there at a 45 degree angle cephalad. Previously, when we talked about doing the needle cricothyroidomy, we were placing that angiocath in a caudal direction. So this will be one distinction here where you're actually going cephalad here. We want to be careful not to advance the needle too far. This could cause damage to the vocal cords if you advance that needle too far. You'll take out the needle, so you'll leave the catheter still there through the membrane, and then you can advance a guide wire through the catheter up to the oral or nasopharynx. Once you visualize the wire there at the oral or nasal cavity, you'll use your McGill forceps to pull that wire out, and then you'll thread your ET tube over the wire and down to the trachea. As you're putting the tube down to the trachea, there is going to be here a, a, a timing issue where you're not going to want to pull the wire until you're completely sure that the tube is right in place. So you'll make sure that as you're placing the tube, you'll make sure that you have really good resistance. So this will be the tube following that wire right to that cricothyroid membrane, which is going to be below the level of the cords. What you don't want to do is pull out this wire prior to having that tube right down there to that cricothyroid membrane. You could, in error, think that you're there and maybe you're just getting hung up on uh, cartilage, the arytenoids or whatever, and you're not through the cords. This is where if you pull the wire, now you've just undone all of the work that you've done to secure the airway and you still don't have the tube going through the cords. So it is imperative that you make sure that you feel the tube there uh, knocking right there on the cricothyroid membrane so that you know you're in a good place. At this point, you time this well. So as you pull the wire out, you are advancing the tube down. So you're not accidentally, again, pulling that tube back and pulling it through the cords, and then you have not secured your, your airway. In essence, this is a very similar technique to think of like a bougie where you are placing that and now you're just tracing that wire through. This would just be in a, a situation where you're unable to even visualize the cords or get anything through uh, to the cords from the upper airway. So you would need to go from the cricothyroid membrane up through either the oral or nasal airway, and then you can then feed that over that wire and uh, secure your airway that way. And let's talk about when we're starting induction, uh, after we have uh, intravenously induced a patient, we now go to try to mass ventilate, but with no success. So last time we talked about, you were able to ventilate, we move on and we just couldn't intubate. Now let's say we can't ventilate the patient. So again, same technique here, you'll slip in either an oral or a nasal airway um, or another supraglottic device, try to ventilate again. If you're still unable to ventilate at this point, there's a couple different options. So at this point, you have to ask yourself, have you already given a muscle relaxant? As we mentioned prior here, there are conflicting views on whether you've given a muscle relaxant up front or if you wait until after you're able to establish ventilation and then you go ahead and give your muscle relaxant at that point. And there's really two camps here. And I, there's, there's really good views on both sides. You could point on both sides on whether you should hold off on giving the muscle relaxant until you've established this uh, ability to ventilate the patient after you've gotten them to sleep, 
Or do you give the muscle relaxant while you're putting them to sleep and that it will assist in your ventilation by the time they are completely asleep? And uh, the dilemma here, and the thing that I think a lot of people in the camp of saying we should wait until we establish ventilation, there is this fear of, well, what will happen if I get the patient asleep, I get them anesthetized, I go to mass ventilate, and I can't. I can't ventilate the patient. And if I already gave a muscle relaxant ahead of time, I'm now at the point of no return is the argument that I typically hear. And if you've already given that muscle relaxant, now you're stuck moving forward. You either have to get that airway or you have to find some way of, of waking them back up. But now you've already given a muscle relaxant. So how do you do that appropriately and efficiently in a timely manner? And that's the argument here. Whereas the argument of giving a muscle relaxant while you're putting the patient to sleep, meaning right after your propofol or whatever induction agent you're giving is that it will assist you in ventilating the patient. So if you do have a patient that is a, a difficult mask, a difficult ability to ventilate, and you gave that muscle relaxant right at the beginning, it's going to start kicking in and helping you to ventilate. By the time you've given a couple breaths, you've noticed that it's difficult to ventilate. They then start to relax and you become easier to ventilate. And so really there's this, this conflicting viewpoint between anesthesia providers of well, which one do you do? Uh, and so really, we wanted to look at a national study that addressed this topic to see, I mean, what is the, the current literature showing about which direction we should take on this matter? So this is, you know, in my opinion, like on par with the Mac versus Miller debate, right? Like depending on how you were trained or maybe it's your experience in a clinical setting and you've just seen something be successful for you. But it seems like whether to give the neuromuscular blocker right after your induction agent or not, there's a lot of conflicting arguments, a lot of conflicting, you know, views on what people would prefer to do, what people view as safe. So in any situation, it's always important to look at the literature. What does the literature say about giving neuromuscular blockers right after your induction agents? And there's a really good study by Patel that looks at a summary of the large body of literature discussing whether or not neuromuscular blocking agents should be used prior to mask ventilation, or if you are giving them in response to difficult ventilation. And so this is something that we you really wanted to pass along and uh, talk about the findings here. Like Cole mentioned, the fear is that by giving a neuromuscular blocking agent prior to being able to mask the patient, then the fear is, okay, I've already burned that bridge, so to speak, and I can't mask them now. And I've already given a neuromuscular blocker. Now the clock is ticking as far as your time to severe hypoxemia. The thing of the matter is though, that you've already started that clock. As soon as you've given your induction agent, you're already on that clock as far as going to severe hypoxemia. And now we have to look at, okay, does giving the neuromuscular blocker help mask ventilating or help moving down your difficult airway algorithm. And what this study showed was that of 53,041 attempts at mask ventilation, only 77 cases resulted in impossible ventilation. So that's different than, you know, difficult ventilation. This is impossible ventilation. Of the 77 cases, 73 patients received either succinylcholine or rocuronium. Three of the patients were woken up one received a cricothyroidomy, and the other patients had a successful tracheal intubation. So the recommendations from this national audit was that in the event of impossible ventilation, a neuromuscular blocking agent should be given 
before the anesthesia provider allows severe enough hypoxia to develop so that the degree of surgical intervention is necessary. So their suggestion is that their recommendation is to give the neuromuscular blocking agent either prior to attempted mask ventilation or in response to a difficult ventilation. Either way, you should be giving the neuromuscular blocking agent according to this study, which leads me to question if that's going to be your first step. If you get into a space where you are having a difficult ventilation, a difficult hand mask ventilation, now your next step is going to be to give the neuromuscular blocking agent, then it reasons that you would give it immediately after your induction agent, since that would be the first step in your algorithm anyways. And now, like I said earlier, the clock is already ticking as far as your slope to the severe hypoxemia where you're having issues. And so the faster you can get that muscle relaxant on board, the faster that that can have time to set up, the faster you are already moving towards either a successful tracheal intubation or successful mask ventilation. But if you still can't ventilate the patient here, again, time is of the essence. We can't waste any time. And so we need to think, do we need to move right now into an emergency invasive access technique? And this is going to be more of an emergent situation than what we've talked about before, because in the previous example, we were able to ventilate the patient. Uh, We just couldn't secure an airway, but we were always able to ventilate the patient. And that was the important thing. Here, we can't ventilate. We're not getting any oxygen into the patient. We're not eliminating CO2. Um, We need to make sure that we're moving through these steps quickly and that we're not wasting any time. So again, make sure if you do decide to move into this type of invasive airway method, you've tried to do an LMA already at this point. And if you haven't tried to do an LMA, even if it's not working successfully at this point, but you're able to get something better than just simply using an oral airway, allow that to be a bridge. And as we'll talk about when we get to the, the malpractice claims, there's a significant amount of times where there was no mention of doing a supraglottic airway device as a bridge to try to oxygenate the patient and ventilate, even if it's just a marginal ventilation while you're waiting and setting up and preparing for this invasive airway. So again, we'll move on at this point to the invasive airway steps, but again, it's going to be a lot more of an emergent situation than the previous example where we could ventilate the patient because time is of the essence here. We need to be aware of the passage of time with only minutes up to four or five minutes starts to cause um, some permanent brain death when those tissues in the brain cells don't have any oxygen. So we need to make sure we're moving quickly. Uh, And again, you're probably going to be going in to do a cricothyroidotomy at this point. And it's going to be a lot quicker because we're not able to ventilate the patient, but just make sure that we are still attempting um, with an LMA or supraglottic airway device uh, to be able to actually get some marginal type of ventilation. If anything, even if it's not getting much at all, we need to make sure we're trying to bridge something while we're setting up and preparing for this invasive airway. Other options, you can try to do some alternate uh, difficult intubation approaches, such as a fiber optic, a lighted stylet, et cetera. Um, Again, here, just be aware of the passage of time. We don't want to be wasting too much time trying these things. If something's not working, move right on to the next thing. Don't continue to try the same thing more than two attempts. And really, these alternate approaches should be used only while we're preparing and setting up to do an invasive airway, simply because we don't want to waste time doing these alternate routes and then moving to an invasive airway, all the while the patient has not been ventilating from the beginning up to this point. So that's really the main difference between um, the the cannot intubate versus cannot ventilate scenarios. In the cannot ventilate scenarios, you have the patient here that has not been able to receive oxygen from the beginning. Um, And so time is very much of the essence. You're much more of an emergency state than in the other 
uh, time period where we were able to ventilate. In that situation, it's very important to take your time once you get an adequate ventilation, talk and communicate with the other providers, make a plan. But in this scenario, you need to be moving forward quickly. Don't be wasting too much time on one thing uh, and make sure you're communicating with each other uh, moving forward because time is of the essence. The last thing we want to talk about today before we get into our close claims analysis and just talk a little bit about what that looks like, we want to talk about what happens when you have a suspected or known difficult ventilation or intubation situation. This is where you're going to pick this up in your pre-op assessment or possibly while you're reviewing the chart, you can see that previous intubations have been difficult. This is where you need to evaluate the patient look at what was done previously. If you don't have any prior information, you need to really rely on your personal assessment and make sure that you have a good plan moving forward. Say this is just going to be a difficult intubation, then maybe you have more people there on hand. You have all of the tools that we've talked about previously there ready to go. But there is another situation where you look at this patient and you say, you know what, this is going to be a very difficult intubation or possibly inability to ventilate the patient. So what could we do then? The next thing that we can look at is doing an awake intubation. This is going to be mostly done with a fiber optic scope. You could potentially do a retrograde intubation or even do video assisted laryngoscopy. Uh, the, The key is you're going to want to discuss all of these options with the patient prior to performing this. I have never seen uh, an awake intubation using the retrograde intubation. Uh, I suppose there could be a, a reason for that if you have very difficult upper airway anatomy. Usually using the fiber optic scope or the video laryngoscope, you are able to do this awake intubation. That's typically what I've done and what I've seen in the past. The main thing here, again, is that you're going to want to communicate with the patient. And I've never done one of these that the patient wasn't nervous. And that's obviously understandable. This is a a very big ordeal to us as anesthesia providers, but also imagine from the patient's perspective, what they are thinking and what their concerns are as far as being in pain or feeling that they couldn't breathe. Those are all things that need to be clarified and communicated to the patient that you walk through step-by-step exactly what will happen Again, there's always going to be some underlying level of nervousness and nerves, but the ability to communicate ahead of time while things are calm and in a controlled environment is going to just make your communication during the procedure that much more effective when it's not the first time that they're hearing this. The benefit of keeping the patient awake is that they'll be able to maintain their own ventilation. They're able to hold their soft structures um, out of the way, able to hold their tongue more of an anterior position, which increases the size of the pharynx and our ability to pass an airway. The patient is going to be maintaining their reflexes. So if you think about aspiration, uh, if that's a concern, these are all advantages of doing the awake intubation. A couple of things that we can do there is we can uh, do regional blocks that will help facilitate this. We can do this topically, or we can do this um, actually by injecting some local anesthetic. And then we'll also talk about some of the different medications that you can use to help them uh, be sedated enough to keep them calm and uh, blunting some of their reflexes, but also keeping them awake, protecting their own airway and cooperative as we need to work together to secure this airway. 
for the regional blocks, we went through these in detail in the last episode. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through them all again. I'll just mention the different options that you can do here. You can do the glossopharyngeal nerve block, which would be the back part of the tongue and the oral pharynx. You can do the superior laryngeal nerve block, which will block sensation to the laryngeal structures above the vocal cords. You can do the recurrent laryngeal nerve block, which will block sensation to the vocal cords and trachea. But often what I've done and what I've seen typically done is to use topical anesthesia. So you could do these different nerve blocks. And again, if you want more specifics on those, go back to our last episode or in our show notes, we've outlined those uh, in detail here. But typically what you'll see is a topical anesthesia, and you can do this several different ways. You could either uh, spray this uh, with like a hurricane spray into the back of the throat you can use topical anesthesia that is going to be nebulized. This is very common. You'll have them uh, just do a neb prior to going back to the OR. They will just inhale this and, and they'll be breathing this for some time and this will cause a generalized numbing. Or you can do a similar to like an LTA, you could use the 4% lidocaine and place that actually on the fiber optic scope. And then as you are advancing down the airway, you can go ahead and inject this. This will cause them to cough and it will just spread that local anesthetic all around there in the trachea and cause some numbing. Again, this is something that you need to communicate with the patient ahead of time because this is going to be somewhat uncomfortable initially and maybe a little bit scary as they uh, feel that lidocaine and then they start coughing and might feel like it's a little bit out of control to them. But that's something that you can communicate that that's what we want. We want them coughing. We want that lidocaine to be just spread all around and, and moved around and that will settle down. And once that settles down, then you have a really good uh, numbed trachea cords, and then you're able to pass that ET tube more smoothly. So talking about the steps of an awake intubation, um, as Tanner mentioned, there's a bunch of different ways we can go about relaxing the patient and helping them to be, to be more cooperative for this. Other IV medications that we can give uh, usually are a mixture of different cocktail medications, and that uh, depends on the preference of the provider here. Um, but different medications that can be included are Versed, Presidex, Ketamine, um, you can give some fentanyl, et cetera. Uh, really here, you're wanting to maintain the patient's spontaneous breathing effort. You don't want to take that drive away. So even though typically these medications in a small enough dose will not do that. Just be aware, assertive on how much of a dose you're giving with these medications, because the whole point of this is to keep them spontaneously ventilating. Um, once the patient is ready though, um, you can do a quote, awake intubation. And while we say awake, they don't necessarily have to be wide awake with their eyes open here, but we really want them to be spontaneously breathing. So there's a couple different options. The first is you can simply do a DL or a video assisted laryngoscopy, um, which sounds kind of backwards when you first think of it. Um, but once you get this patient where they're relaxed and comfortable enough, you can just take a peek with one of these two laryngoscopy, uh, whether a DL or a video assisted methods here, and you can simply look for a diagnostic purpose. Um, you're simply looking to see, do they actually have a difficult airway? Can I see the glottic opening easily? And if you can, you can just induce a general anesthesia at this point and then intubate the patient. I'm using the same technique as what you just did via DL or video assisted. But if you're unable to see the glottic opening very well after that initial diagnostic look, then you can decide to perform a flexible fiber optic guided bronchoscopy to help you then with a preloaded ET tube on top of that fiber optic scope and you can intubate via that method. Um, or you can just simply, instead of doing that diagnostic look, you can simply just go straight to the fiber optic scope that's already preloaded with the ET tube, 
and you can go down, visualize the glottic opening, go through the cords, and then advance that ET tube through. Um, in general, for a fiber optic scope, uh, nasal routes usually a little bit easier than the oral route, simply because the angle, the curvature of the nasal cavity better aligns that shape um, to get you into the glottic opening. But again, you can do either or here. Uh, the nasal fiber optic also decreases the risk for a gag reflex versus if you go through the oral route. Um, the disadvantage though, if you use a nasal fiber optic intubation technique, obviously whenever you're going through nasal, uh, you have the increased risk of bleeding. So don't really do that method if you have a patient with uh, any coagulation if difficulties, if you have a pregnant patient, et cetera. Um, as mentioned before though, it's really imperative that you clearly explain all the procedure of the patient, both in the preoperative setting, but then also while you're actually implementing uh, the procedure itself. Even though the patient may be uh, not completely mentally aware with the medications we've given, I find that for one, if I tell them ahead of time, but then two, if I walk through things step-by-step step while I'm doing it, um, especially if they're more on the awake side, it really helps them be more cooperative. Additional medications you can consider while you do this. Uh, you can give uh, Robinol just to minimize the secretions. Uh, you can give an H2 antagonist for any type of aspiration prophylaxis that you would want to do. Um, you can consider a vasoconstrictor for a topical application to the nose. Um, if you're going to be doing a fiber optic through the nasal cavity, just to limit that bleeding. So just know there are some different additional uh, medications that you can do to help you successfully get this intubation. Now, if you are unable to successfully intubate though, uh, you must decide if it's best to just postpone the case, if we're not going to be able to do this, do we do an awake elective invasive airway, such as that retrograde intubation that we talked about? Um, or if you have to induce with anesthesia, um, maybe the patient um, is unstable and they have to be intubated and we just need to get into this sooner. Uh, make sure you have the emergency equipment ready if this is the case, um, but just know you have options here. And that's the beauty of why we are doing this awake with them spontaneously breathing because this is all our plan from the beginning. Um, we know they may be difficult. And so we have different options. You can either wake up, you can decide to do things uh, from an elective invasive standpoint, et cetera. But the beautiful thing of it is we aren't rushed. We have the patient spontaneously ventilating and we're keeping the patient safe up front. Um, so that really wraps us up talking through the three different aspects here. One, when you can't ventilate, two, when you can't intubate, and three, when you already suspect either a difficult ventilation or intubation, and what are the things you can do from an anesthesia plan in terms of an awake intubation technique. But now to finish this discussion, we really want to wrap up by talking about um, some of the airway malpractice claims that can arise. And so we've looked at a couple of different things, both from um, the ASA and the AANA regarding some of these close claimed analysis of uh, different malpractice claims that can arise. So I think it's really important to to just take a step back for a second and realize as anesthesia professionals, we have both the skills and the knowledge to manage an airway, but with that comes a high responsibility to manage the airway appropriately. And there's been a number of malpractice claims that have arose from management of the airway, um, especially in situations where we have these difficult ventilation or intubation events occur, uh, whether they were suspected or did they, if they actually occurred, um, we see a lot of these claims start to arise. And so we really want to take some time to go through and talk about that. And so we looked at a close claimed analysis that was released in 2019 by the ASA. Um, and they formed a team that looked at the management of difficult tracheal intubations. And the authors compared the events of these close claimed analysis between the years of 1993 up to 1999. And they compared that 
to the early 2000s, all the way up to 2012. And they compare what changed during those. And the claims that they brought about were anything that resulted in a permanent brain damage, airway injury, um, even death. And interestingly, almost three-fourths of the claims reported from the 2000 to 2012 era um, were associated with judgment failures, um, a lack of proper airway plan, failure to utilize the supraglottic airway as a bridge to oxygenation during that cannot intubate, cannot ventilate scenario. Um, there was a delay in attempting to do a surgical airway. Um, so three-fourths of these resulted um, from those issues or were associated with those issues. What's also interesting um, when I was reading through this is you can see once we shifted into the 2000-2012 era, there were a lot more procedures starting to occur outside the main OR. And as a result, then we saw these claims that were being reported um, from incidents that occurred outside the OR. They increased by over 100%. They went from uh, 11% of the claims being out of the OR up to 23%. So almost a quarter of these claims are happening now outside the OR. And this, for one, can be simply because we're doing more procedures outside the OR. But you may not also have all the equipment readily available to you. Uh, I can tell you, at least from my experience, there are some places where I'm doing anesthesia and it's a little scary because you're not as close to all of the, the backup that you would need um, if something does go uh, the wrong way. And so um, that is something to be in mind uh, when you go to these places and these different settings, just be aware of what do you have resources for you and both right there in the room, but also who would you need to talk to and what would you need to be brought to you and where would those things be at when you are um, in these remote settings. So another thing with this article is the amount of death or increased proportion of brain damage increased during that 2000 to 2012 timeframe compared to earlier even though there were more advances in airway equipment. And the results could be related to simply we had an increase in the higher risk patients, there were more emergency cases, more emergency care, um, different surgical procedures, et cetera. Um, but we did see, even with the more advanced in airway equipment, we did see more of these uh, events occur. And so the overall trend um, that they noted was that there were a lot of judgment errors. They were The judgment errors are more common in these uh, elective and urgent procedures compared to the emergency intubation procedures. And that really shows that there was an overall lack of uh, adequate airway strategy for these cases. I mean, we, we mentioned that when we first started this episode is you get in this mode of you're just doing case after case. It's just routine and you're not really um, critically thinking about what do I have as a backup if my plan A does not work? If I saw a patient in pre-op and their airway wasn't perfect, if I see some things that might arise some suspicion to a difficulty um, in either ventilating or intubating, do I have a plan set in place for that? And they saw there was an overall lack of that, really probably because there was a false sense of security, as we talked about before. I think that is so telling when you when you look at the difference in the types of cases, because I'll admit just like you said earlier, that you you just get into kind of a groove and to uh, this is just the next case and you get into a kind of a comfort zone there where you're not thinking that this case is going to uh, require all of these things we've talked about here in the algorithm. I had a, a preceptor when I was in school say that you need to approach every case like it's worst case scenario. And sometimes I felt like that was as a student, you know, you kind of uh, definitely not exteriorly roll your eyes, but inside you roll your eyes, maybe a little bit. And you're like, Oh, come on. This is just like, 
uh, you know, we're doing a, a ortho case on a knee replacement or something. And you think this is just very straightforward, very healthy patient. I think the reality there is that it actually shows your newness. It shows your lack of understanding of just how bad things can go. And, and oftentimes the uh, most seasoned people are the people that are the most prepared because they've seen it. They've seen how a very run of the mill case can go very badly. Oftentimes I think as students, you just maybe feel frustrated or like, you know, this is, this is just over the top. And that's a lot of times maybe due to some um, naivety of not knowing all the different things that could potentially happen. So when you have an emergent case, obviously it's all hands on deck. You're, you're prepared for every scenario, but for a routine case, uh, I will admit I do the same thing where you can kind of fall into this comfort zone. So I think that's very telling and very important that we keep in the front of our minds that every case demands the same type of preparation and the same type of attention so that we can effectively care for these patients. It's important that when we are doing a pre-op assessment and that we have identified a potential for difficult intubation, uh, that there is a discussion that happens ahead of time. I think this is extremely important. This is something that is mentioned in this article about having uh, proper communication ahead of time, especially for uh, difficult intubation. This should be communicated with the team and uh, everybody should be on the same same page. I thought something else that was interesting is that it talks of an idea known as perseveration or persevering basically in the same thing uh, over and over again. So if you've tried the same thing three times without any change in the results, uh, roughly 25% of the claims from 2000 to 2012 were due to the practitioner not changing and not moving on to the next steps of the algorithm. And we talked about this earlier. This is something where you can kind of get zoned in and you're just doing the same thing over and over. And this is really telling that a quarter of these claims had the same issue happening where somebody was just trying the same thing with no change in the outcome. And they tried it over three times. So this is again, imperative that if you try something, it's not working, you keep moving, you move on to the next thing. I think we should talk quickly, just why people feel reluctant to move forward in the algorithm. I think many times this is because of a lack of knowledge about doing a surgical airway. This is not something that you do routinely. And it's certainly something that you probably were not expecting to do when you walked into that case that day. And so uh, maybe you're more comfortable with doing a fiber optic. You're more comfortable doing uh, using a video laryngoscope. And so you go to what's more comfortable instead of moving down the, the algorithm and really what would be uh, best for the patient could also be lack of the availability by the surgeon. Oftentimes we're going to sleep before the surgeon is there in the room. And so that could be another uh, issue with not having the surgeon right there and available. And then we also, I think, could have issues with the delay of calling for surgical airway. So if you are going through your algorithm, this is something that should be called for early so that it is uh, ready and you're prepared to move on to the next step. Often you could be in a position where the ventilation is deteriorating and now you are still uh, needing that surgical airway to, to be there. And so you're now just wasting precious time. The guidelines state that you should place a superglottic device while you're preparing or while you're placing the surgical airway. Over a quarter of these claims did not have a superglottic airway attempt as a bridge. This is another thing that I think we just overlook and you're thinking, I need to secure an airway, I need to secure an airway, and you bypass the uh, superglottic airway. 
And like this shows over a quarter of the claims did not have a superglottic airway in. And so this is something that is important that we just really um, stop and think about and draw attention to. So what were the conclusions from this study and the recommendations moving forward? Um, So the authors really mentioned here how human factors such as situational awareness, communications, uh, a knowledge of the guidelines and the algorithm, how they're all imperative to limiting these adverse events that can occur. And also how knowledge of the difficult airway equipment um, and where they are placed geographically in the individual facilities are very important as well. Um, As we mentioned before, you need to know where do you find this equipment? Are there specialized carts located in the OR that you would need for a difficult airway management? Um, Does the other staff in the room know where that's at? Does your circulator know where that's at? So that while you're managing the airway, you can tell them to run out and grab that. Um, And also knowledge of what is in that cart or whatever you have that has difficult airway equipment. What all equipment do you have in that spot that you would know how to use? There should also be cognitive aids, they said, used for difficult airway management. We all know when you're in these kind of moments, it's very easy to kind of have your brain freeze, if you will. And it's almost, it's hard to think about what do I do next here? And to get rid of all of that, all the emotions that are tied to it, it's very useful to have these cognitive aids. For example, just simply having the difficult algorithm sitting right there on your difficult airway cart. That way you can just go through step-by-step what needs to be done. Um, While I have not had one of these events actually occur, even when small things happen, such as maybe a laryngospasm at the end of a case when I'm extubating the patient, or I'm having difficulty uh, ventilating at first or difficult intubating at first, I can already look back at my watch keeps track of my heart rate throughout the day. And uh, I'll look back at the end of the day and I'm like, yep, I know that exact moment that I had that situation happen because I could feel my heart rate rise really quickly. And um, it's easy because you start to you start to go into this sympathetic fight or flight response and it almost fogs your brain um, while your heart rate rises and you feel your, your, your heart pounding outside of your chest. And that's again, because we have the responsibility for this. Um, we're not somebody that's just kind of watching this from the sidelines. Uh, and when you're the one responsible for this airway, you get a lot more emotionally attached to it and you start having this sympathetic response. And so it is really helpful to have these cognitive aids available. Overall, the difficult intubation claims showed poor outcomes and failures in judgment. Um, so we really need to improve not only the technical skills, but also our knowledge about the equipment available, like we talked about, um, and the difficult airway algorithm itself, which is why we're doing this episode, um, just to raise awareness for what are the steps of this difficult airway algorithm? What is uh, step A, B, C, et cetera? um, And how do we move through those? And one other article we briefly want to look at in our discussion um, was one published by the AANA in 2018, and it was regarding the analysis of Uh, malpractice closed claims. The AANA Foundation um, had a closed claims research team that looked at 245 closed claims um, from the CNA insurance companies from the time span of 2003 to 2012. And of those claims, uh, death occurred in 87% of the claims, but the claims as a whole weren't solely difficult airway management. They were rather from the whole perioperative experience as a whole, um, where CRNA was involved. But the largest portion of those deaths, uh, about 35% of those deaths, did result from a loss of an airway or aspiration. Of those claims, 40% of them were from ASA class three patients, and another 39% were from ASA class two. I think it's easy for us to think, oh, I just have an ASA two patient. Um, Even if you have an ASA three, you may not have 
your complete guard up um, as if you would have an ASA four or five patient. So it is telling to, to note that a lot of these did happen in ASA two and three patients and not ASA four and five. What's interesting here is the monetary damage that we want to look at that was paid out um, 42 of these 87 death claims. Um, the mean payout here was a little over $307,000. And the other 45 claims that did not result in monetary payout, um, it's interesting to note here, they did not meet the requirements from mandatory reporting to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So just because we say that these other 45 didn't doesn't mean necessarily that they didn't. It's just they were not reported in this study. But of the 42 that were reported, like I said, uh, it's over $300,000 for the average payout. But the average time of these events until the payout occurred was about 34 and a half months. So you're talking almost three years later uh, by the time this monetary value is actually paid out. 21.8% of the claims, interesting enough, were from an ambulatory surgical center. And I think, as we mentioned before, the more cases that start to arise in the out-of-OR experience, either we have a false sense of security that we think these patients are healthier, whatever it may be, uh, it's important that we're taking um, adequate preoperative assessments noted in the back of our mind, what plan do we need to do? Um, if there are a couple things that may warrant us to have uh, an awake intubation potentially. Um, don't just assume because you're in these outpatient facilities that everybody is going to be an easy airway. Um, just because they're healthier does not mean they're going to have an easy airway. And so I, I think it's important not to get into this false sense of security. Uh, we need to take our job seriously with each and every patient, no matter what we're doing or where we're doing it at. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that is super telling when we look through these articles and we look at not only the incident of airway uh, complications that result in these closed claims, but also the amount of seemingly healthier patients, class ASA twos, threes, uh, outpatient surgery centers. These are not benign. These are not um, immune to difficult airway uh, situations. And I think the uh, really the thing that I took away from this was the lack of judgment or the lack of moving on through the algorithm, trying the same thing over and over, just how frequently that results in a poor outcome. And so this is something that is just helpful for me to think about, uh, renew and refresh the idea of moving down the, the uh, difficult airway algorithm, moving down the next steps, taking my assessment very seriously and understanding that every patient, like you just mentioned, Cole, can be uh, potential for a difficult airway. And uh, there's just things that we cannot expect. Obviously, you do your, your due diligence with your assessments, but uh, imperative that we are always prepared for um, what you can't prepare for. That's always the, uh, the the trick with anesthesia to be prepared for what you don't expect to, to see happen. So uh, again, hopefully the going through this closed claims analysis here at the end is helpful for you to understand the importance of this. It's not the most fun topic to discuss here at the end, but I think it's important that we have an idea of just how serious this issue is and have a gravity towards uh, our approach towards uh, an airway, knowing that every single airway could potentially be a difficult airway.